We humans have a lot going for us. We have opposable thumbs that allow us to grasp onto stuff. We speak tons of different languages. Our brains have allowed us to develop things like electricity and cell phones and a telescope that can show us galaxies 13 billion light years away. But there are many things that we can't do or can't do as well as some other organisms. One of those things is regeneration. There are salamanders that can regenerate many of their limbs and organs. Sea stars can regenerate their arms. And a little freshwater animal called a hydra can get cut in half and then form two new hydra. We can regenerate some things, like skin cells and, you know, maybe most of a liver. But we certainly can't regenerate our arms and legs and definitely not our heads. Why not? Welcome to Tiny Matters. I'm Devoki Chakravarti, and I'm joined by my co-host, Sam Jones. Regeneration is a hot topic in the sciences, which makes sense. Think about it. If we really understood how things regenerate, the potential there is kind of unimaginable. We'd not only be able to heal a spinal cord injury or damaged organs and limbs, we might be able to slow down the aging process and not suffer from diseases like Alzheimer's. Today on the show, we're talking to a couple of scientists who are trying to understand how regeneration works by asking, how do other animals regenerate? Because maybe one day we can take a page out of their books and do the same. So let's start from the top. What is regeneration? For me, regeneration means the ability of an organism to restore a missing body part lost to uh, some sort of injury or a catastrophic insult. So if you can regenerate a hand or you can regenerate an eye, that's what I refer to as regeneration. That's developmental biologist Alejandro Sanchez Alvarado. He's the executive director and chief scientific officer of the Stowers Institute for Medical Research in Kansas City, Missouri. The curious thing about regeneration is that it's uh, broadly but unevenly distributed across different animal species. And uh, not understanding why that is, is probably preventing us from understanding the root cause of some of our own diseases and some of the maladies that affect our health, because many of those are actually a consequence of an inability to sustain or restore the wear and tear of uh, tissues in our body. And so if we could understand how animals that can do this easily, I think that that would help us understand why we cannot really uh, repair tissues in our body when they go bad due to disease or just degeneration. Sam, you know Alejandro, right? Yeah, I've actually known Alejandro for over a decade. I was a research technician in his lab right out of college. I knew very little about anything when I showed up, but what I did know was that this regeneration thing was pretty cool. And Alejandro is an A-plus storyteller who knows a lot about the history of this field. So it was fun chatting with him and taking a bit of a walk down memory lane, starting in the 18th century. 
historically, the discovery of regeneration took place in a microscopic organism known as hydra. Hydra live in freshwater, typically streams and rivers. They're these cute little opaque tube-shaped animals with a crown of tentacles on them. They were first really studied in earnest by a Swiss naturalist named Abraham Tremblay. In 1740, Tremblay discovered that he could cut the animal in half and both halves could regenerate, producing two fully functional hydra. Alejandro told us that this was not only something people didn't believe at first, a lot of people were actually upset by it because a common belief at the time was that the soul of an animal was indivisible. So if you divided an animal's body in half, it would of course die. But these hydra didn't die. They were doing just fine. All they did was multiply. Ultimately, most scientists got on board with this. When Tremblay showed that uh, this organism could be split in half and each half could regenerate a complete animal, that really lit the intellectual uh, worlds of late 18th century, mid-18th century Europe on fire. And from there, people started looking at other organisms to see if they too could regenerate. Hydra and snails were really popular to work with, but amphibians ruled the roost. And salamanders really reigned supreme for most of the 19th century and the first half of the 20th century as a regeneration organism that people wanted to study to extract the secrets of uh, missing body part regeneration from them. But Alejandro doesn't work with hydra or snails or amphibians. He works with planarians, small flatworms that are around five millimeters long, which is about the size of a pencil eraser, maybe a little bit longer. They're actually really cute. Yeah, I agree. They are very cute. Their eye spots kind of make them look like little anime characters or maybe the big sad eyes emoji. Yes, that is very accurate. Look it up. (laughs) They're so cute. (laughs) Yeah, definitely look this up. So about these cute worms. Their ability to regenerate was discovered by a guy named Thomas Hunt Morgan, or T.H. Morgan, back in the early 1900s. If you've heard of T.H. Morgan before, it's likely because of his work with genetics and heredity. But he was also interested in regeneration. And once he realized planarians might be something special, he decided to test their limits. He began cutting the worms into very small pieces to see how small they could be and still regenerate into a full animal. He actually got to 1 279th of an animal, which we now know is something like 10,000 cells, which is actually very few cells, but it was still enough for the worm to regenerate itself. The equivalent of me cutting my little finger and watching my little finger regenerate a complete Alejandro, which is a terrifying thought, okay? So after T.H. Morgan, there were some scientists who continued to work with planarians particularly in Europe and Japan. But they kind of fell out of favor in the States. I have to be frank with you. When I set out to uh, study regeneration, I did not really have a specific animal in mind. I had already began to work with amphibian tail regeneration, but uh, I realized very quickly, at least for me, that that was going to be a dead end. And so I asked myself the following question. Is there an animal out there that does regeneration really well, that I could try to exploit in order for me to illuminate my understanding of the mechanistic underpinnings that make regeneration possible. 
Then, in 1995, Alejandro went to take a developmental biology course, specifically the embryology course at the Marine Biological Laboratory in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. For those of you who are not familiar with this lab, it's on Cape Cod and it's been around since 1888. And this embryology course in particular has happened every summer since 1893. There's an incredible library at the Marine Biological Laboratory that has this rare books collection. So Alejandro is in this library and comes across a book that was written by T.H. Morgan in 1901. It's titled Regeneration. The first three or four chapters described all of these magical things, almost seemingly magical things that planarians could do. And so I thought, well, somebody must be working on them. So I went to the library again, looked for publications, found very few. And I realized all of a sudden that there may be an opportunity here to take this remarkable exaggeration of a biological process in these animals and take it apart, dissect it, and analyze it molecularly and cellularly. And I thought, maybe this is the system. So once Alejandro decided to work on planarians, he needed to create a planarian colony to do experiments with in his lab at the Carnegie Institution for Science in Baltimore. It's pretty straightforward starting a planaria colony because as long as you have a few of those planarians, you can just cut them into pieces and then those pieces regenerate into full animals within a couple of weeks. But Then there was a mishap with some rerouted water that killed off almost every aquatic organism at the Institute, including the planarians. Alejandro and his colleague, Phil Newmark, needed to get things up and running again, stat. So they traveled to where they knew they could find the worms, an abandoned fountain in Barcelona, Spain. And it was cracked and it wasn't working. But when it rained, it would fill up with water and the worms would come from underground where there's an aquifer and then you could collect them that way. And today, almost every lab in the U.S. is working with descendants from one of those worms that was collected from the fountain. Okay, so now that we have all that background settled, Deboki, I say we talk a bit about what kinds of questions you can ask with planarians. Yeah, let's just dive into it. So Alejandro says that one of the things that fascinates him with regeneration is this concept of how do you teach an old dog to do new tricks? In this case, the old dog is a cell that's in its final differentiated state, meaning that it's got what seems like a pretty set identity and a pretty set way of life. Except that during regeneration, those old dogs are learning some new tricks that turn them into a completely different type of cell. So let's take a fully formed animal. In it, you've got muscle cells, you've got skin cells, cells specific to your lungs and brain and everything else, right? Right. But once a planaria starts going through regeneration, those cells have to somehow shift to become different types of cells. So maybe a tail cell can become a head cell. The question is how? How does a differentiated cell become something new? One way Alejandro and other researchers are trying to tease apart the different genetic pathways and players involved is by using something called RNA interference, or RNAi, 
a method that led to researchers Craig Mello and Andrew Fire winning a Nobel Prize in 2006. So with RNAi, you can generate double-stranded RNA to target a specific gene, blocking it from being translated into protein. In simple terms, you're shutting down the function of that gene. And now we can ask, in the absence of this gene, if I cut the planarian, will it have any effect on regeneration? And lo and behold, we've been finding genes that actually are very, very important in the ability of these animals to regenerate. We have one gene, for example, that when we target it with this RNAi or double-stranded RNA, no matter where we cut the animal, it only regenerates heads. Not tails, but heads. And so we get these multi-headed animals from just perturbing one gene. And the list goes on and on and on. So we've been able to use this tool to give us an idea of what molecules are most likely necessary for allowing this animal to do what they do. What I like the most about these animals is their ability to force us to question what we think we understand about cell biology, about genetics, and about how these things come together to produce form and function. Every time that we push these animals to yield some of their secrets, they push back and surprise us with how ignorant we truly are about how these things actually work. I love that. Me too. We humans can be very confident. And I think sometimes what we really need is a cute little worm that can regenerate its head to put us in our place. I think it's safe to say that by now, Alejandro has probably convinced you that planarians are very cool. So now let's talk about another animal that can regenerate better than us humans, the zebrafish. Zebrafish are freshwater fish that are black and white striped. That makes a lot of sense. That's some great naming. Yes. And I guess, you know, to be fair, in certain lights, they do look a little bit more blue and white striped, but whatever, they're striped, they're zebrafish. So these fish are native to South Asia, but they're used in labs all around the world for tons of different research, including regeneration research. Dana Klatshaw is a postdoctoral researcher in the McCollid Lab at Washington University in St. Louis, and she studies zebrafish spinal cord regeneration. Zebrafish can fully regenerate a functional spinal cord when theirs is severed, something that is, of course, not possible in humans for a variety of reasons. When a neuron is injured in humans, even if it survives that initial injury, it actually degenerates uh, typically. You lose additional neurons even after the initial injury. Dana tells us another issue for humans is that we don't really have the ability to generate new neurons once they're lost. And there are broader issues that are beyond what's going on in the neuron itself. We have all of these cells that recognize there's an injury and they infiltrate in and they actually participate in this scarring response. Uh, in the spinal cord, this re results in what we call this kind of heterogeneous, dense, fibrotic scar. It's this really dense tissue that packs in the lesion and prevents axons from regrowing across it. So in the fish, this response is entirely different. So neurons, once they're damaged, we don't see this degenerative response in zebrafish. And zebrafish are capable of adult neurogenesis, which humans are not. 
we actually don't see this scarring response and we don't see this hyperinflammation or, or at least the same kind of hyperinflammation that we would see in, in the human spinal cord. The zebrafish gives us a really great opportunity where we can go in piece by piece and, and pick apart the system and say, okay, so the fish regenerates spontaneously. What are the conditions where it doesn't regenerate? And so we can, you know, kind of like Jenga, actually pull out piece by piece and say, you know, what, what can actually cause the system to collapse, to not regenerate? One of the first projects that Dana worked on when she started in the McCullough lab was with specialized cells that zebrafish have called bridging glia. Glia are cells in the nervous system, but they're not neurons. Their job is to patch things up after an injury, but the way they do this is different depending on the animal. In mammals, they're involved in the scarring that happens after spinal cord injury. In zebrafish, the glia cells actually change shape and form a kind of bridge across the lesion, connecting the two halves of the severed spinal cord and providing a scaffold for new neurons. So in zebrafish, there isn't scarring, there's regeneration. And so this was characterized over 10 years ago, but we didn't really have a good understanding of the signals that told these glia to have this really robust kind of dramatic transformation after injury. So we were able to identify kind of a, a list of genes that's important for instructing these, these glia to respond to injury in the way that they do. Ultimately, with, with the, the goal to say, okay, you know, how can we actually trigger human glia to, to perform a similar function? Now Dana is also working on understanding how the immune system interacts with neurons after injury. For the longest time, we thought that the human immune system was actually pretty anti-regenerative and was triggering this scar response. Um, but we're learning that, that it's really not that simple. So if we deplete the immune response in mammals, systems like mice after injury, they actually have worse regenerative outcomes. So it's not an all or nothing thing. It seems that there are pro-regenerative aspects of the immune system as well as anti-regenerative. The zebrafish immune system is really well conserved uh, with mammals, um, very similar between the two species. So it's giving us this great opportunity where we can go in and say, well, what, what aspects of the immune response post-injury are actually pro-regenerative? So again, picking apart piece by piece to look at different immune cell types and different molecular pathways. All of these findings are allowing researchers to understand more about these complications when it comes to spinal cord injury. I think, you know, we're understanding so much more about these complications. So, for instance, you know, 10 years ago, one of the main treatments, uh, if you came into a clinic with a spinal cord injury, they would treat you with a drug called dexamethasone. So this is a broad anti-inflammatory drug, and it was the idea that, oh, this immune response is generally detrimental, so if we can dampen that immune response, we can you know, try and save these axons from degenerating and, and save this kind of, you know, prevent the secondary damage. And, you know, as I mentioned, we, we now know that the immune response is actually pretty important after injury, even in humans. I do generally feel optimistic. We know so much more now than we knew 10 years ago, and, and I think we're going to continue on in, in that direction. 
think every model organism has its strengths and weaknesses. So collaboration across species is um, incredibly important for this field. Planaria, they don't have a spinal cord, but you can still use them to ask super important research questions that we can't ask in the fish community and people in the mouse community can't ask. So I think it's leaning on each organism's strengths to really, you know, make progress in this very complex field. Okay, it is tiny show and tell time. Sure is. I'm just pretending there's like a some sort of like music to amp us up right yeah. now. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm trying to remember. I think. I think. Last I think time, I'm first. Yes, you are first. Okay. Yeah. Whenever you are ready, go for it. So today. For my tiny show and tell, I'm going to talk about something that I don't think I talk about that much on this podcast, physics. Because physics, it's hard. Anyways, the thing about physics is I feel like it's a field that exists to make even the simplest things feel so much harder than they need to be. And I know it's valuable, but it's it's a lot. And this, this is like evidence number, I don't know, a billion for me in this, this thing, but it's part of also what makes physics so cool. And this is based on an article that I was reading in Quanta about whether or not hot water freezes faster than cold water, which is not something I had really thought about because to me, just like immediately, it's like, well, duh, the the cold water should freeze faster. But apparently this is a thing that people have been talking about for like ages because actually it's not always the case. Apparently in the fourth century BCE, Aristotle was talking about how Sometimes people who wanted to cool down water would actually put it outside in the sun to kind of get it warm first, I guess, before they started cooling it down. But there's actually a name for this phenomenon, this potential phenomenon, and it's called the Mpemba effect. Um, It's named for Erasto Mpemba, who in the 1960s was a teenager, and he was in school and he was making ice cream. And for some reason, his boiled mixture that he was making for his ice cream cooled a lot faster compared to the the uh, mixtures that his classmates put into the fridge, which had already been previously cooled. And he was really curious about this. So he actually asked a physicist named Dennis Osborne about this. And so they were working on some experiments to basically document, like, does hot water in particular cool down faster than cold water? And they published it in a journal in 1969. And so since then, this phenomenon of hot water, like cooling faster than cold water has been called the Mpemba effect. It's really interesting, but it's also really difficult to replicate these experiments because it turns out that how you measure the temperature of water, again, because physics is so good at making simple things complicated, there's all of these confounding variables that come up. And so there have actually been scientists who've been trying to replicate this effect. And in 2016, there were scientists who were testing stuff out to see if they could replicate these experiments. And they found that where they put the thermometer in the water changed what temperature they actually measured. And then there were basically ways that they could almost fake this effect in their <laughs> in their experiment, even though their samples didn't actually show this result overall. So it was interesting because then they looked back in the literature and they found that Mpemba and Osborne's results were the only ones where 
the effect was so strong that it couldn't be due to this kind of measurement issue. So there's still clearly some kind of effect that was measured, but replicating it just turns out to be really hard. But it's really hard to pin down in part because this kind of cooling thing that physicists are trying to understand, apparently what makes it so hard is that this is a system that is out of equilibrium and is trying to approach equilibrium. And I guess that's just difficult to study. I really love this article because I thought it did a really great job of explaining the story behind how people have been trying to study this effect for so long and why it's so hard. So I definitely uh, really enjoyed this article. I am um, proud of you for <laughs> for bringing something <laughs> physics related. <laughs> Thank you. Um, because <laughs> I'm going out of my comfort zone. <laughs> yes, absolutely. It's kind of cool also when you think about the really basic stuff in science that seem just you know, intuitively, oh, of course, this is what would happen. This is what makes sense. And then all of a sudden, experimentation tells you otherwise. Even these things that just seem so obvious, maybe, you know, can't take everything at at face value. Yeah. Is your intuition wrong? We don't know, because it turns out measuring things is hard. All right. I'm ready to share my tiny show and tell. Yes, go for it. So... Unlike you, I did not go outside my comfort zone in the very least um, because mine is fully biomedical science related, which is what I did my graduate work in. So uh, (laughs) kudos to you. (laughs) (laughs) Let's start with a tiny bit of backstory. You might remember that at the beginning of 2022, so end of January of this year, there was the first pig to human heart transplant that happened in a living patient. This guy, 57 years old, um, unfortunately, you know, he survived for a couple of months with a pig heart, but then he did pass away. That brings me to something that happened more recently, just happened. Two patients, they were considered brain dead and they were actually about to be taken off of life support. They were given uh, pig heart transplants. One of the patients, I guess, the pig heart was a little bit small for them. And so they actually had to then adjust the blood vessels to account for the size differences and different mismatches. Um, And so the blood flow wasn't perfect, but it's just, it's giving them a real life opportunity to try and make this work in a person who's going to be taken off of life support. One of the surgeons had a news conference following this um, and said, you know, we learned so much. If surgeons were able to learn so much with just a couple of these surgeries or a few of these surgeries, imagine maybe a year from now, a couple years from now, where we might be. So yeah, that's incredible. It reminds me so much of the stuff we were talking about in the Body Farms episode in terms of both the ethics and, but also like the the respect the people who are working in these body farms have for the people who've donated their bodies in that case, because it is like such a tremendous gift for uh, people. Yeah, just make that choice, which is not trivial. Um, and in this case for the families, like it's a huge decision yeah. and that's incredible on a personal level. And then also the science and the potential medical impact is, that's crazy. That's so cool. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Tiny Matters, a production of the American Chemical Society. I'm your exec producer, and I'm joined by my co-host, Deboki Chakravarti. This week's script was written by Sam, edited by me, and by Matt Radcliffe, who's the executive producer of ACS Productions. As always, it was fact-checked by Michelle Boucher. 
The Tiny Matters theme and episode sound design are by Michael Simonelli, and our artwork was created by Derek Bressler. Thanks so much to Alejandro Sanchez Alvarado and Dana Clatshaw for chatting with us. Sam and I are planning to do a Q&A episode in the next couple of months, so please send us questions, your science questions, your questions about the podcast, your questions about us. We want to hear from you. Send them to tinymatters at acs.org. You can find me on Twitter at okidoki underscore bokey. And you can find me on Twitter at Sam J Science. See you next time.